Welcome, everyone, to Hystericology Podcast. You're here with me, Dr. Elizabeth Beckman and Andrea Hansen. We are so excited today to have a guest that we are going to be able to explore something that Andrea and I have talked about throughout some of our past podcasts, but maybe we can go into a little more depth with our guest, Dr. Damien Wild. He is joining us from Liverpool, England. And Damien, if you can tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself before we launch into our conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for inviting me on, Andrew and Elizabeth. It's uh, great to be here. We've had some interaction and conversations on LinkedIn. I think that's sparked a mutual interest uh, within the area of psychological health. So I'm a clinical psychologist. Um, I originally worked as a primary school teacher. It's maybe what you call over there kindergarten. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So a bit of crisscross with sort of language at different points. But um, yeah, so I was a teacher and that was a profession that I enjoyed, took a lot out of, but I had a really interest in clinical psychology. So I've gone off, worked in various junior positions, completed my doctorate in clinical psychology um, at Coventry and Warwick Universities uh, in the Midlands area of England. I've then gravitated back to where I grew up, uh, which is near Liverpool in England. Um, I've done a lot of work for in England, what we call CAM services, which are child and adolescent mental health service. So usually working with children and young people aged between 5 and 18. And I've also worked in adult services, uh, 16 plus age range. In one service, I set up a psychotherapy part of the service. Now, during my training and during my sort of postdoctoral posts, amongst other duties, my main specialist, specialism is psychodynamic psychotherapy. So I'm a big advocate of providing people with a safe, containing, protective space to explore themselves, to explore their experiences, all within a warm relationship. So I mainly worked for the National Health Service in England, but just recently I've set up my own private practice. So I've called it Wild Psychology. So it's got the name in there. Um, And so I'm providing therapeutic work in schools, psychotherapy with adults, uh, supervision, training. So that's another way of being able to kind of disseminate to sort of a larger kind of range of people. So, yeah, sort of um, the new venture is uh, finding its feet and I'm building that up. And, uh, yeah, I'm just happy to be here to talk about some topical important things within film mental health, things which I think need raising awareness about. Yes, and we are so excited to have you here. I've loved your posts. I've loved our interactions on LinkedIn. Um, And so for the listeners today, we are going to be focusing on informed consent. What is lacking currently in the informed consent when it comes to mental health services? And of course, we are all clinical mental health counselors in some way. Uh, we are not psychiatrists. However, we, we're also going to be talking about what's lacking there. As mental health therapists, our work overlaps a lot with psychiatrists, and we work hand-in-hand hand with psychiatrists at many different types of clinics, so we have a, a really good understanding of what happens there, as well as you know keeping up with the, with the research. So with informed consent, what that means 
is when you go to a doctor, when you go to a therapist, you should have some paperwork that you do at the beginning and you should have a discussion similar to if you go into a surgery and they give you a huge stack of paperwork and it tells you all of the bad things that could potentially happen as a result of the process and what to expect from the process. So from my experience and training in uh, doing informed consent, in offering informed consent with clients, it's usually pretty short. Uh, as a therapist, we go over you know confidentiality, the limits of confidentiality, what to expect from the treatment process. There's no magical cure or anything like that. And that is really the extent of the baseline of the process. What about for, for you two, Elizabeth and Damien? I know for me, everything you said, Andrea, is what is included in the informed consent process that I go through with my clients. I also, having my private practice not working with insurance, I always try to provide a little bit of extra information too about what it means to receive a diagnosis because working private practice I don't have to have a diagnosis in order to justify insurance compensating me. I've agreed upon a particular fee, a particular rate with a client. And so uh, often sometimes I'm even letting them know how I operate and then how that's going to look a little bit different than another clinic. And where often I, I don't necessarily fixate on the idea of having to give someone a diagnosis. And I talk about some of the limitations of diagnoses and what that can mean to a person moving forward, which is not something I know that I engaged in when I worked at clinics, because it was, it, that was a part of the protocol is you're going to meet with them. And within the first or second meeting, you need to have a diagnosis. It needs to be in this particular range for care to be covered, but what about you, Damien, when it comes to informed consent? What's your normal process? And then I know we're going to kind of launch into where informed consent is not happening at the level that it should. But what is your process of informed consent with your clients? So when I was working for the National Health Service, and just for all the listeners, so in England, in the National Health Service, it's free state health care, okay? So when I was working for them, any assessment sessions or psychotherapy, psychotherapy would be free. Okay. Now I'm working, I've set up my own private practice now, so it's a little bit different, although some of the work I am provided is funded by kind of state organizations like schools anyway. But in the NHS, during an assessment session or in my private practice, I initially offer a free consultation. And during that, what we'll talk about is, you know, what is psychotherapy? Okay. What type of things might you expect? What is the process like? But as well as talking about some of the potential benefits, we'll also talk about some of the difficulties which might come about. So, for example, actually, a therapeutic space is that kind of dedicated focus space where difficult emotions might arise during a session because it is essentially a feeling space it's not a social space it's not a workspace it's a different kind of space and if difficult feelings are coming up and feelings that we might kind of sit with or someone might come who's experienced trauma and we talk about potentially uh, the processing of trauma is actually that can be quite distressing so I think it's really important that a person is aware that although psychotherapy could be beneficial for their psychological health, is that there might be difficulties during the process for them as well. 
So we talk about the importance of kind of self-care after sessions, um, during sessions. So I think it's really important, okay, that they're aware of things which might become difficult during the process because often we'll talk about how we're passionate about what we do and that it's effective, that it changes lives. But we also must be honest and open and give a person full information and that there could be potential kind of uh, detriments which could occur during the process. So very, we have a very open and frank conversation about that. So if somebody agrees to come into psychotherapy, they've got an awareness of what the process might be like. So that, that's important for us to be open and honest and, and work ethically. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I have a, a question for you because our system is different than your system in the UK. When you yeah. are working with government funding, um, is a diagnosis required for care to be free? It depends on which service you're in. So in England, um, the NHS, the National Health Service, is split up into different what we call NHS trusts. So there are certain NHS trusts which are specific, say, for acute physical medical care and some which are specific for mental health services. And often within an NHS trust, there could be different types of services. And some services may say, okay, our criteria is to access this service. For example, you must have a diagnosis of a personality disorder. Okay. Mm-hmm. Other services, so teams I've worked in, so for example, um, in, in adult care in some of the NHS trusts, you'll have what are called community mental health teams. For short, we call it CMHT. And for people to see me in a CMHT, they didn't need a specific diagnosis. They just could be someone who's significantly struggling with their mental health, right? And that type of approach, I think it's better because I do remember working in other services where we'd have what are called referral meetings. And sometimes we'd, we'd receive a referral saying, would you offer you know, psychological therapy for this person? And some other people in the meetings would say things like, oh, I've noticed on the referral letter, this person has a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, personality disorder. Maybe they're too complex for our service. And I often used to kind of interject and make a point and say, well, let, let's, let's look at the person as a whole. Let, let's just put the diagnosis to one side from over. And that's what the problem that you can see within certain services is people think, all oh, right, they've got this attribution which they attach to a diagnosis. A person with borderline personality disorder, or perhaps they're going to be difficult. They're, they're going to be, you know, these kind of terms like complex to treat, right? Yeah. And then what happens is we come away from looking at the person, right? Okay. Why don't we look at the you know person? Oh, it's John. You know, um, he's had this traumatic life event. He's currently living you know in poverty. He's isolated. Um, is is there something our service could offer? Could we help to meet his needs? Right. So sometimes you can get away from that. Um, so so some services you don't need a diagnosis to access services. Some you do, and I think for the reasons I've just touched upon, that that can be problematic. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, we found both of us having had experience working at clinics that are in network with certain insurance companies. What you end up seeing is there is a lot of trying to make symptoms someone's experiencing fit into a particular label that then will get their care covered. And this is kind of a dirty little secret that happens where not only is the person lost, as you're talking about, their humanity is lost, their strengths, because it's so heavily fixated on that. It becomes an issue of how do we demonstrate they're making enough progress within this little diagnostic box we've stuck them in, but how do we also demonstrate to the insurance company they're still unwell enough to justify paying for care? And so it's this vicious cycle of focusing on deficit, of pathologizing, and all of these little, I'm trying to even, I'm trying not to be too derogatory in how I describe it, but to me, what feels like these little dishonest reframes that have to happen that, first of all, continue to kind of solidify perspectives that I think we were talking about this before we started recording. This idea that depression is something that you have, it's due to a some neurological issue or chemical imbalance, and you're never going to be free from it. And what that does is it keeps the person trapped in this hopeless cycle of, I'm never going to get better. And it also- becomes their identity. Yes. Mm. And we're treating them from that lens of I'm seeing the dysfunction, not the person, but also we're telling people things that aren't necessarily justified in science and they're believing yeah. it, taking that. It, it, you know what I was thinking as you were just talking about Elizabeth, it's almost like for some people like in, in America, you know, with the insurance companies, but probably also in England as well. It's almost like for some people, Having this kind of diagnostic box, it's an administrative kind of thing. It's it's like, oh, well, it's just easier because I can tick a little box which says they have this. I was trained not to use diagnosis. My training, I'm sure you've come across it, we'll use something called formulation. And ju just, just for the listeners who are not aware of formulation, this is building up a deep understanding of, of why someone feels the way that they do or why they present it the way that they do. So we kind of make links and say, well, this happened in your life. It led to you feeling like this. And then that happened. So it's kind of all making these things. So someone is sat in front of me and say, I never, ever cry. And I'm curious as to know why that is. Then maybe in the medical professional say, well, it's a symptom of a disorder, right? But then I might say, I remember five sessions ago you saying to me when you were when you were little that you got shouted at when you cried and you felt really upset by that. And then you, it sounds like you've then started to shut away the tears because you open up. There's an anxiety that somebody might shout at you and something bad might happen like it did when you were younger. So I think um, but a formulation takes time. Right. I a formulation in the session, it you know, psychotherapy sessions, you know, could take five or six sessions, you know. I mean, during an assessment session, I could come up with it, I suppose what we would call an initial formulation. Mm -hmm. Maybe when you start to generate some hypotheses. But it takes time, whereas a diagnosis could be nice and quick, tick your box, mm -hmm. and administratively it's easier for people, but I think a wise supervisor during training once said to me, and this was on my specialist psychodynamic psychotherapy uh, elective place, and she said to me, Damien, humans are complex. And she said, you can't box humans. 
Mm, yeah. yeah. Totally. And as you're talking, I'm looking at uh, the listeners won't be able to see this, but there's this sign behind Damien on this beautiful picture of the mountains. And it says, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakes. And I think that perfectly encapsulates everything that you're talking about, that when we look outside ourselves and we say, okay, I fit into this box, this criteria, uh, we we're stuck then. And I've seen it over and over and over again with clients where you get this label and that becomes a fixation. It becomes a crutch. It becomes the ultimate excuse of, well, nothing I do matters because that's not going to change how I feel. I don't have to focus on my nutrition. I don't have to focus on getting the right sleep or making decisions that are in alignment with my sense of meaning and purpose. And I don't have to, I don't have to go inward and do those things that you were talking about, look back and see where have I lobbed parts of myself off to fit into whatever environment I was raised in or whatever environment I currently find myself in. Everything is pretty much hopeless and outside of my control. All I have to do is take this medication and accept life as it is. Whereas if you look inward and you're curious of what's going on here, why why am I feeling this way? And exploring, there can be so many amazing, incredible answers and shifts that can happen, but you have to release that box of the diagnosis. Well, and the visual, yeah. I, the visual I got when you were talking about formulations was this kind of from more of the standpoint of how things are done here, especially if you work with insurance, you work at a clinic, is yeah. more of that kind of tunneling outward, I need to find the label versus the formulation is more, no, I want to go to the heart. I want to go to the root. I want to go to the genesis yeah. of this thing. What's 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 keeping it alive? What's contributing to it? And an actual, we're very, and we've talked about this in the medical field here uh, in, in the US, where there's more of this tendency to let's treat the symptoms versus let's get at the heart at what's contributing to this, whether we can then actually help with symptom remission or recovery, depending on what's happening. But how do you feel like operating from more of a formulation standpoint versus having to find this checkbox that they fit into and, and then operate from that and frame everything from that perspective? How does that help you be a better clinician? I think I'm able to sit with my clients more so and develop a better deeper more special therapeutic relationship with them because as well the type the type of therapy i use is more exploratory we don't have an agenda at the start session and there's no some services in england have a fixation on getting clients to complete what we call you know like measures questionnaire measures so these are kind of uh usually measures you know sponsored by companies like Fires, you know, PHQ-9, and I don't, I don't know if you've come across that. It's supposed to be yeah, you know, we have those. Depression, depression scale. And, 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 and I, said to someone, I said to someone once, well, um, I, I don't need to give that to my clients because if, if I want to find information out, I'll have a conversation with them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, novel, <laughs> uh, revolutionary. <laughs> it's like, have a conversation, you know. Um, and, and, you know, one of the types of, um, you know, one of the kind of sort of sub therapies of uh, within the psychodynamic field talks about, you know, therapy being um, sort of conversational, uh, 
right? And I think there are certain aspects of sort of diagnosis or using measures or your tick boxes and all your administration administration things. And in England, they tend to be will say, well, we need to measure things because the commissioners who pay for the services, they want to see that it's working and it's effective. So I kind of get that. And I know that we need to show kind of value and show that there's progress being made. But I think when I'm kind of sat with people in terms of developing that formulation, it feels a bit more natural, right? You know, and it fits in with that, I suppose, conversational model. And I think, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, well, you know, you practice in this way because you were trained this way. And yes, okay, I was trained in this way, but I know what works, okay? Mm -hmm. And yes, I reflect all the time. I get regular supervision. I learn from colleagues. I have good uh, CPD. I don't know if you use that term in America, continuous professional development, you know, further training and going on courses and continuing to learn. But I know what works with people and and you know, people are not sat there saying, oh, Damien, please give me a diagnosis, right? <laughs> um, and I think, I do, I do remember, I think I think we touched upon this just before we started, and I was saying to you, there have been occasions where I mean, people have been given a diagnosis, and they've said to me, oh, I'm not sure whether therapy would be helpful because I've got this brain disease, and um, well, I'm stuck with it, aren't I? So can't really do much about it. So is, 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 is there any point in therapy? And that's then where we'll have a curious kind of discussion. But I suppose that's one of the problems that I see with diagnosis. And you touched upon both of you a couple of the things is that, and I was saying before, it almost becomes a person's identity. You see it on social media where people have, you know, their disorder name as, as their handle and, and, you know, they take photographs of, of their medication and, and the whole identity becomes about having this disorder and, and this disease. And I think rather than celebrating the person and saying, well, you know, this is John, this is Beth, and this is what they like to do, this is what they struggle with, this is what they'd like to see change and be different, um, it kind of gets stuck on, on that. And I think the label as well, particularly the personality disorder label, a lot of people with that label might have experienced, say, for example, childhood sexual abuse, which is horrific and has a big impact upon someone. Or things like neglect as well. When a person gets to adulthood, they're understandably struggling. They're understandably struggling to self-soothe and, and sit within relationships. And then suddenly, you know, a doctor after half an hour says to someone, oh, well, you know, your, your core of being your... Your personality is disordered. I mean, how insulting mm. and shaming is is that? Um, so, so I think. Um, but I mean, I suppose touching upon what we we're talking about, you know, at the start in terms of about consent is we've talked about how we'll be open and honest about some of the potential advantages, disadvantages of psychological therapy. Do, are doctors, uh, medics talking about, you know, the potential pitfalls of receiving a diagnosis? Are they giving yeah. full information about side effects, withdrawal effects with medications associated 
with these particular disorders. So is informed consent fully happening? And from what I've heard at, at an anecdotal evidence level, sometimes it's not happening. Yes, I yes. I have to agree with that, but especially, well, with all of it. But as you're talking about this new phenomenon where we are kind of diagnosis happy, or we want diagnoses. Mm. Elizabeth and I have both actually experienced clients who are actively asking for diagnoses. It's become such a fad to have a diagnosis, especially currently ADHD and autism. We're having a lot of people ask for autism diagnoses. While on one hand, it's great that awareness is rising and that people are trying to reduce stigma around it. On the other hand, there is that culture that's partially created, I believe, by the lack of informed consent, by the lack of therapists, doctors, whoever's doing the diagnosing, not telling people the limitations of the DSM as they hand out their diagnosis and letting them know, look, this diagnostic criteria might help you get resources and that's why I'm giving it to you or it might help you get your care covered and that's why I'm giving it to you. However, we don't really know what it means. We don't really know if we've clumped these symptoms together in a way that makes sense. We don't really know if these these specific symptoms are just variations of normal human behavior and experiences or if they're actually an issue. We don't really know what's causing them, so it's not necessarily going to inform treatment the way that the the diagnosis that you get. There's not really a chemical imbalance that we've been able to find or a neurological difference that we've been able to scan for. So these medications that we are going to offer you might offer some relief, but could have long-term side effects even after you get off of them. There's so much when we just give somebody a diagnosis and we say, sounds like you, you're you experiencing this, <laughs> um, and then this is the treatment for it, then that's the tipping point of misinformation being spread all over the place. And the yeah. I used, um, I think, an analogy the other day when talking to Elizabeth, where if I were to do the self-breast exam examination thing that you're supposed to do to see if you have any lumps, right? And yeah. if I were to find a lump. And then if I were to go to a doctor or somebody and they didn't test, they just heard me say, I have a lump. And they said, okay, that means that you have breast cancer. And then they started giving me radiation. And then I took that information out into the public and suddenly it became my identity. I have breast cancer. I have, um, I also have, you know, 10 toes. So if you have 10 toes and then you might have breast cancer too. And that's what we're seeing right now with diagnoses is this um, really just huge inflation and this informed consent process, I think is a huge, huge part of the issue. Yeah. Have, have, have either of you read the book called Cracked by Dr. James Davies? I haven't. No. I'm going to write it down. Okay, so it made me think when Andrew was mentioning something and then about, oh, you've got this this group of symptoms. Um, so Dr. James Davies, he's at Roehampton University in England. Uh, he's a psychotherapist, now kind of uh, is a writer and lecturer. Um, but in this book, he, he talks about, and he's kind of writes it in a narrative style, so it's readable. And he actually went over to America and interviewed some of the people who put together DSM-3. 
so I think there's uh, is it Bob Spitzer maybe I think um, DSM three chair. Um, can't remember if I've got that name exactly correct. But anyway, he interviewed several people. He, he also interviewed an intern who was present during the compilation of the DSM-3. And basically, kind of what came out of it, there was no science behind it, no research behind it. It was basically a group of all-male psychiatrists sat around the table day after day and basically saying, well, um, okay, so if someone experiences this, this, and this, what should we call it? Well, we'll call it that. Oh, okay. And uh, the intern actually likened it when they were deciding what to call the uh, group of symptoms, what to call them, you know, whatever that disorder it was. She said it was like they were deciding what to have for dinner. Or should we have Chinese or Italian or this? Oh, oh we'll just have that. That was kind of how she likened it. And uh, it was really insightful. It's a really good read. It's actually just published another book. I'm just taking it off my shelf here. I don't know if you can see that. Sedated. How yeah, modern. Sedated. How modern uh, capitalism created our mental health crisis. So he, yeah. he kind of goes at a wider stance there and starts talking about actually how governments are set up and how everything is kind of set up is kind of geared towards sort of creating this kind of capitalist society where people are blamed and shamed for their problems and, you know, they must get better quickly. That kind of societal approach fits in neatly with the kind of, you know, diagnosis, treatment, you know, quickly get better. If you're not getting better, you're the problem and you're not working, you're not creating and providing for society and, and being you know, beneficial, you know, in our country. and. So, but yeah, the, um, the original book I was talking about, Cracked, it's well worth a read. It also talks in detail about the research into antidepressant medication and a lot of the research which he looked at uh, with various kind of high profile kind of psychologists and psychiatrists have carried out. The medication is no more effective than placebo. And interestingly, mm -hmm very topical in England at the moment because there's an investigatory program called Panorama which is uh, aired on uh, BBC uh, which I'm sure some of the Americans are sort of familiar with the, the BBC as a broadcaster and um, anything which is critical of pharmaceutical companies and that mainstream medical model doesn't often get too much airtime but in this program which is aired this week it showed some correspondences from Pfizer where they told all staff to withhold some of the serious side effects which could come about from one of their antidepressant medications. It also talked about now it's becoming more common for people to experience emotional numbing, sexual dysfunction, and that what's happening is that the people prescribing these medications, and this fits in, you know, with this theme and this point around you know lack of informed consent if people are not being given information about the serious side effects people are not being given information about withdrawal effects now for years in england even the world college of psychiatrists were telling the public this withdrawal effects for antidepressants were minimal not much of a problem and lots of people campaigned and they were actually forced into admitting that it was a problem so this came up during the panorama program as well and a lot of people were unhappy with the program because 
anything which is aired which is critical at all, of course, gets jumped on by certain people. Um, but I think it's about raising awareness. And actually, often when I'm either teaching or taking part in debates, and I'll say, listen, you know, we shouldn't get into conflict. Let's debate. All we're saying is, here's an alter, you know, in terms of using formulation rather than diagnosis, right? Or there's something in England which is receiving a lot of prominence at the moment called the power threat meaning framework, right? There's all we're saying is, here's a different way of understanding distress, right? We're not saying we've got all the answers. We're not saying we're absolutely right. All we're saying is, yes, there's diagnosis, but also there's other options of understanding the way that you feel. And besides medication, there are also alternative interventions, social and community interventions, you know, kind of physical interventions, um, psychotherapy. There are various different. And all we're saying is let it be more of a balanced level playing field with the amount of information which is put out there. But I think with regards to the diagnosis and the medication, what we're seeing is informed consent isn't properly happening because they're not being given the full amount of information. And informed consent is the ethical cornerstone of good healthcare. My concern is that part of the lack of appropriate informed consent is because, like you said, in the formulation of the DSM, it is not often talked about the realities of that. It is framed as though it is this book absolutely built on empirical data that's reliable, that it's the best we have. And so you have professionals who are themselves not appropriately, adequately, fully informed, who are have this kind of these sacred things, like we don't question this. And so they're overly confident and they're not fully informed about all of the limitations or the scope of applicability. So then they're jumping to a particular serious diagnosis for their client, as we're talking about. They're not providing appropriate informed consent around that diagnosis, around treatment. That person might go to their doctor and they're going, well, I'm diagnosed with depression, right? And so doctor goes, all right, great. Yeah, you're suffering enough. Let's put you on a medication. And then there's all multiple tiers and levels of lack of informed consent that then, of course, as, as we talk about, keep people from getting well. And for me, that's one of the, the biggest benefits I've found of freeing myself from what I see as this very dysfunctional system is I actually see people get well faster when yeah. I'm able to yeah. actually work and focus on the human being. Because like you brought up earlier in our conversation, these assessments these procedures it reminds me of the educational system we want to try to prove how educated people are by training people the better train the kids are to memorize regurgitate and get a certain score on a test which only benefits the people trying to validate what a great job they're doing the bureaucracy and in mental health it's similar these assessments don't actually really have a meaningful applicability so much to a client like you said we can better use robots Yes. And it's, but it's made so we can go, Hey, Hey, look what a great job we did or to justify ourselves and continue to solidify our perception that this is the problem. And look, what I'm doing in this regimented way is working. When does that really translate to helping people? I haven't seen where there's a direct correlation of the amount of external assessment and all of this I'm doing to validate how 
wonderful I am or how much progress is happening, actually correlating with better care. I think it, in fact, takes away from that. I think as professionals, we have a responsibility to be speaking out. We have a responsibility to ruffle feathers because if we don't, who else is going to do it? Make good trouble. Yeah. And like you said, (laughs) us not being the opposite end of being so wed or, or committed to what we think is quote unquote the right way, but being open to this possibility of we need curiosity. We need to be able to question these processes rather than doing more to get them entrenched, which often I think hurts more of our, of, of our vulnerable populations and our, and our patients than it does help. Yeah. I think we need more flexibility as you were, you were saying Elizabeth and um, a thought that I had when you were talking about often sometimes it's to do with maybe practitioners or professionals. It's to do with their own stuff about how maybe they want to practice. And it made me think about, well, how many of the professionals out there, you know, whether it be counselors, psychotherapists, therapists, psychiatrists, social workers, whoever it is, do they understand themselves well enough? And I know, like, you know, personally, for my own personal professional development, you know, I've been going to psychotherapy weekly for seven years. So I've got a good idea of what it's like on the other side of the room. And also I try to keep a good understanding of my own stuff and and what's going on for me, which then I think helps me, not just myself personally, but also for the work that I do. And, yeah, this kind of you were saying there, you're being human with a person. You've seen that have benefit for the people that you work with. And and I see that too. And it's often about, you know, a wise tutor during training, this is another one, said to me, everything's relational. And actually, you know, the relationships I've had with the people I've worked with have been genuine and warm. And, you know, and that has helped to bring about change and and help people to recover. Yeah, and it's such a complicated question, right, of how we... How do we direct the mental health field? I saw a talk by Dr. James McPartland where he talked about where do we go? He was specifically talking about autism. He said, where do we go in the next 10 years with research about autism? And he brought up a point that I really agree with and I think ties into what we're talking about is we need to stop focusing on figuring out what autism is and how to treat autism. And instead, we need to focus on each individual symptom and how it interacts with each individual person and how to treat that. And I think that that applies to the entire DSM or the ICD or whichever version you're working with. The more that we try to focus on these categories, the more we're missing the mark, we're missing the human, we're missing out on all of the little puzzle pieces that that make it up. And I've never seen it be effective with these assessments that you're talking about and that Elizabeth is talking about as well. They tie back to the DSM. They're not about the human. If somebody comes in and they say, I've been diagnosed with depression, we still have to ask, what does that mean for you? What does that look like for you? We don't know what that means, <laughs> right? And then they tell yeah. it. And then we give them these assessments and it ties them back to the criteria in the DSM over and over again, as opposed to, you know, if we just look at what is your main, what what is bothering you? What's really getting it to you in your relationships, in your life? And then we focus on that 
that's where it really matters. And even with medications, if we're looking at what's a medication that can treat this entire diagnosis, we miss the mark and we create other issues. Like you're saying with the Pfizer situation that's happening currently with talking about, do these antidepressants do what we say that they're doing? And are these side effects okay or not to be giving to people? Yeah. Just touching upon a few things you said there, Andrea. Um, one of one of the sort of people say an advantage of a diagnosis, this is kind of an argument sometimes put forward in England, is they say it's useful shorthand. Okay. So they'll say, you know, if maybe a child's going to a school, they can say, oh, they have ADHD, or maybe, you know, an adult's going to workplace and so is there anything we need to be aware of? Or will they have, you know, bipolar disorder? And people think shorthand, great, but like you were saying there, if you say if someone's got depression, you're saying, well, then what does that mean for you, right? Okay, because if you go to the, you know, if you go to an internet search engine and type in ADHD, bipolar disorder, whatever it is, you'll get a generic description. You're not going to get a personalised, individualised understanding of the person, right? So the shorthand argument doesn't kind of really fit because you're also going to have to say, okay, well, what it was it? What is it in particular about Alan? You know, who's going into a new school? What is in particular about him? And then someone might have to say, well, actually, he tends to find it hard working in big group settings, and tends to find it easy working in smaller group settings. Okay, so so then actually, then the personalization starts to come up. So if you're going to go into the personalization anyway. You don't really need the diagnostic label. Like you said, the shorthand, who is all of it meant to benefit, right? (laughs) Like you said, obviously, using that shorthand with a school to try to get your child access to extra support, sure, ultimately, you're trying to benefit the person, but the fact that we've set up our systems in such a way that, that we must label people sometimes... I think very much inaccurately is a real disservice, but then too, it has no benefit to the clients. And in fact, as Andrea brought up, we have both experienced individually clients who somewhere they have lost themselves in the process of trying to heal. And they are not only asking for a diagnosis, but a specific serious diagnosis. And you can sit and you go, I've worked with you for two years. I've worked with you for three years. I'm telling you, you don't fit the criteria, but let's even talk about why is it you feel that you need this diagnosis? Again, I think that's where there's not enough of us speaking out, I think, as clinicians who hopefully we should have all of the information to be able to share. We're not counteracting some of these toxic narratives and even misinformation that people are receiving, but then it's forming a social dialogue about what it is to have ADHD, what it is to have a mental health disorder generally, what it is to have autism, to where you have people self-diagnosing and claiming and self-limiting. But I think you were going to say something as I kept talking. Oh, yeah. I was just, it just made me think because we were being, earlier on, we were being critical of certain professionals who, you know, the diagnosticians giving out the diagnosis. And I, I think in my experience, there's probably less people seeking a diagnosis in England, some people. But actually, for the people who are seeking a diagnosis, you were touching upon there about why is that? And I think sometimes it's a psychological defence, okay? So actually exploring and touching upon the stuff that has caused their distress and difficulties might potentially feel too overwhelming. Mm. So it's easier 
to attribute their difficulties to, well, oh, I did that because I've got OCD or I did that because I've got bipolar disorder. So then actually it becomes a shield and they don't have to go murking at the difficult stuff. I 100% agree with that. And also I think it can be overwhelming in the other way as well. Like you were talking about earlier with this sedated book James Davies wrote, and I've seen it a lot as well, just where our society is not set up for us to function optimally as humans, to feel okay as humans. We're set up to be as productive as possible, to sit still all the time, to be alert all the time. Yes, to not make mistakes. To only be emotional very appropriately, to always say all the right things, and we have a microscope on us at all times. We are getting overwhelmed. We're, I don't know anybody who doesn't have some kind of sensory processing issue at this point because we're being constantly inundated with some sensory experiences while being completely deprived of other sensory experiences. We're not okay. So some of it is absolutely exploring internally, and others is We need big social change, even as we're talking about informed consent. I'm thinking, how do clinicians even do that? Myself, when I've worked at clinics that require a diagnosis because they work with insurance and they really push even specifically some certain diagnoses, you can't really sit there and tell your clients all the informed consent about diagnoses and risk them leaving the clinic and not not working with you because then you as a clinician are going to lose your job and that's your livelihood. Or we have the medical schools that are funded by these pharmaceutical companies. And the Pfizer one is the one that's happening in the UK right now. Recently, a couple of years ago, we had Shire Pharmaceuticals. There was a big lawsuit because they were spreading lies about Adderall and ADHD medications. And these are the companies that are funding medical school and they're funding that we call them continued education credits here. You called it something else there, continued professional development. But they're funding yeah. the doctors and they, they're going in and they're they're tell- and the doctors are overwhelmed and the therapists are overwhelmed and we're all just trying to do our job. So there's even systemic stuff that's hampering our ability to do thorough, honest, informed consent as clinicians. I was just, I was just interested to say, what is you two, what is your experience of causing good trouble, being critical, speaking up? Because what happens in England sometimes is we'll get called... We'll, we'll get labelled. It's done to try to slow us and silence. Oh, you're anti-psychiatry, mm-hmm. right? Or oh, you're a pill shamer if you make a, a critical comment about medication. And, um, and I'll say, well, we should be able to debate. It's not about who's right or wrong. It's about having a conversation. I'm just wondering, do you end up getting a lot of conflict and, you know, from people... So we have a couple of recent examples. I'll say me personally, part of my personal decision not to be a part of the dysfunction was to remove myself from the way the general clinical settings operate. And so to start my own private practice. And then of course, working more on a one-on-one case with my clients, I'm not necessarily coming face-to-face with other clinicians, unless I'm seeking consultation, like with Andrea or with others to help my clients. But probably the biggest way we're collectively trying to speak up against certain things in the field that we find are destructive or aren't helpful, including even the teen treatment industry, which is something we've talked about, we're going to continue to talk about, is on the podcast, but also trying to do outreach kind of socially, not that it's necessarily the best way to do it. But we have, we experienced, especially Andrea, 
major horrible kickback in just trying to provide education in comments or videos. We're seeing people post that aren't going challenged. For example, there's a lot of people talking about, well, I have a strong commitment to justice. And I was told by my therapist, or I watched a video that said only people with autism have a strong sense and commitment to justice. And therefore, people who are neurotypical, and there's these neurotypicals, these negative labels, they don't have a commitment to justice, only us. And so there's totally misinformation. But when we were trying to go in and correct and provide alternate perspective, Andrea, literally share what you experienced just from trying to provide correct information. It was, it was a bit of a mob online. They, there was a lot of people and they, they were finding me on all of my different social media outlets and trying to yell at me and my things. They got the phone number for in Utah. We have, it's called Doppel, the, the licensure department. And they were spreading that around saying that they should call in and try to get my license revoked, that they reported me to the APA, which I, I'm a clinical mental health counselor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't belong to the APA anyway, but they did that. They were trying to find personal information about me to come after me. Um, they doxed the wrong person. They doxed with yeah, two of name. the wrong people with my same name. It was it was a lot in this stuff. It's it happened horrendous, horrendous, and even other clinicians as well in workplaces that I've I've had. I've had bosses, you know, just yell at me for trying to provide proper care to clients or informed consent to clients, and make all kinds of accusations and threats. And it's held very deeply and closely. And I know that from our previous conversations, you've had people coming after you as well. You said especially on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I started the conversation off quite lightly there by saying sometimes we'll get slurs like anti-psychiatry. But unfortunately, your story, Andrea, kind of resonated with me. It's happened to me and a number of other people. We're not coming onto forums and social media platforms and discussions and podcasts. We're not kind of saying, look, I have all the answers. I'm completely correct. What often people do and, and everyone will do this individually, they will speak from experience, okay? And I'll speak, you know, with my training, my experience of sitting day to day with people. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, we've had people making complaints to workplaces, making complaints to regulatory bodies. And, you know, obviously, because there's, there's, there's nothing to those complaints, they get thrown out. But, you know, the process can be stressful and people manipulate these systems and processes because there are certain, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's like this in America as well, it seems to be like this everywhere at the moment. It's, you go to a workplace regulatory body, literally they have, to, they have to investigate everything. And I joked to someone the other day, like, it's like if I put on Twitter, you know, I like cake and someone says, well, that tweet distressed me. <laughs> Something yeah. I'm making a complaint. You're in it's trouble. It's like, oh, yeah, we investigate everything. Please come on in. And it's like pandering uh, to people and uh, who, who are out to abuse the likes of you and I. And these systems are set up almost to help aid their harassment. So I've had to get the police involved with some people. It's And wow. I'm not the only one. You know, the person who fronts up the power threat meaning framework in England, the clinical psychologist, her and some of her colleagues, have had the most horrendous abuse. And then you start to think about why is this happening? And I think um, you've got pharmaceutical companies, you've got professionals who are professionally 
invested in this medical model kind of system. I think people are feeling threatened. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, we're coming out and saying, well, look, there are alternatives. There are different ways besides diagnosis to understanding distress. And I think, unfortunately, some of them feel threatened and then they start to lash out, which is obviously inappropriate, and then kind of just makes their argument or viewpoint fall down, really, because it's like, well, hey, you know, you're being abusive. You know, is that your style of practice? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's really, I think, challenges a sense of identity, unfortunately, in this field, I think in a lot of fields, but especially in the medical field, we identify so much with what it is that we do. You know, doctors are doctors and it's who they are. So if if we're challenging the way that they've gone about practice for X amount of years and all of the yeah. education and all of the student debt and all of that that they got into to be this person and treat clients in this way, that's their identity. And then the way that diagnoses have shifted into, like we were talking about earlier, the the sense of I am my diagnosis, I am ADHD yeah. queen or whatever is their social media handle, and that's all they talk about. Then if we are challenging the diagnostic system, then we're also challenging their identity. So it's, yeah, it shows, I think, ju- just like you're saying, it shows the glaring issue in the diagnostic system that we are becoming this identity and grabbing onto it so strongly and it's really limiting our ability to be human, our ability to think outside the box, our ability to think critically, to listen to other opinions, to explore all of that. Our ability to heal, our ability to awake, like your poster says, as we were talking about that earlier, it's painful and it's vulnerable to, as professionals, step back and allow ourselves to be unsure and be clear about where the field has limitations and is yeah. not clear and that we're operating often full steam ahead, but it's not often off of information that necessarily validates that. It takes courage to take our shields and our security blankets off and have these conversations. And then again, as you were saying, that parallel with with clients as well, trying to empower people so that they don't feel they need to cling to that security blanket or that shield in order to be themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that that is not themselves. It's an external label. And they are so much more than the sum of their quote unquote symptoms. I often give certain examples during these debates. I'll say, okay, so, so there was um, a mental health institution originated many, many decades ago in England called Bedlam. Unfortunately, it's kind of tagged onto a word in England. If something's a bit chaotic, and so someone said, oh, it's Bedlam. So it's kind of used in the English language as well. But I mean, this is I'm not sure how many decades ago, but the intervention of choice at Bedlam for people with mental health problems was purging. Now, imagine if no one had challenged that. Maybe at the time people were saying, well, I'm, I'm not sure whether purging is very effective at helping people with their psychological health problems. Oh, no, you you this, you that, and maybe they get attacked. Mm-hmm. But obviously that changed. And then probably maybe talking about two, three, four decades ago, someone had a panic attack in England. They could end up in what was known at the time as a mental health asylum, right? Locked up maybe for years. And then... Let's not forget that in the 70s, on the DSM, what was on the DSM? Homosexuality was classed as a psychiatric disorder. 
Mm -hmm. Imagine if nobody had challenged that. Yes, absolutely. And so many atrocities, you know, and, and missteps. There were torture, just legitimate torture as mental health treatments. And and there even still are. I mean, in the US ECT. ECT, yes. And lobotomies aren't illegal in the US yet and in most states. So it hasn't happened really since the 70s, but it still is on the table. And the 70s just wasn't that long ago. So there there have been missteps. And I love that that parallel of if nobody had said anything, if nobody had challenged yeah. it, then where would we be now? And even the whole, you know, demonic possession and and all of that, that whole stage of the mental health industry, we have a responsibility, we have a duty. So I appreciate you being all the way out there in the UK away from us. And you're you're doing the same thing. You're spreading the same message. And for me, that's comforting. And books like you bring up by James Davies. And I also love Dr. Alan Francis. I bring him up all the time. He was on the chair of the DSM-4 and 4TR, has written a lot of great books. But what we're talking about here, it's not conspiracy theories, right? This is this is hard data. This is hard facts. And or yes. lack thereof. And yeah, or <laughs> acknowledging lack yeah. thereof. Hard, this is, this is what I see every day in work. Fact. Yes. This, this is what I see every day in work. I sit with people. We understand why they're struggling. We use a formulation. I also, I don't just recommend psychotherapy. Sometimes I could recommend psychotherapy when I was working with the NHS. Now in private practice, I work very ethically. And I'll, I'll sometimes say to people, well, this is here if you'd like to access it because it's paid. So the dynamic changes a little bit. But I'll often also say to people, look, maybe go and try uh, NHS services first because you can access therapy free there. I know what works because sometimes you can get frustrated and say, well, why can people not see things? I've got a number of colleagues and I, and obviously yourselves in America, who are working in compassionate ways, who value that human relationship, not like in and out the door in 10 minutes. Because, I mean, I've worked with some excellent psychiatrists in England. So it's nonsense to kind of say it's this anti-psychiatry thing. But unfortunately, sometimes when I was working in the NHS, you'd hear from clients will say, I had me a psychiatry review the other day, first one for four months, and they'll say, oh, it lasted 10 minutes, and I got asked, oh, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, not too bad. Okay, yeah, see you in three months. Or if someone says, oh, I'm, I'm, str- I'm struggling a bit at the moment. Okay, well, we'll up, we'll up your dose of your medication. I don't know if you see this as a problem in America. Is this trend in polypharmacy approaches? Right. So, you know, you'd meet someone and it'd be like they'd be on four different medications. Oh, yeah. I've met people on 20 plus different medications. And it'd be like things like you'd start having a conversation. When we put the they put me on this antidepressant, it didn't work. So the the dose didn't work. So then they put me on this one. It didn't work. The the dose didn't work. Then they put me on this one. The other dose uh, uh, still didn't work. Now I'm on this one. Is, Is it helpful? Uh, not not really, but but I think the problem is with certain mental health problems at professionals, and this is down to poor training, I would say, is their go-to is medication. So maybe a client phones up what we call like the duty line, so client phones up in between sessions, you know, maybe they've seen the nurse and me and, and whatever, and they'll say, oh, all right, I've got a new symptom, I'm, I'm getting intrusive thoughts, and their instant go-to is, Okay, well, we'll prescribe you this. 
Mm. And, and they're mm. already taking maybe three. Yeah. So they're on this fourth. And my, my instant thought is, let's understand this psychologically. Let's think about what social psychological kind of strategies that I could recommend, which might help understand that better, reduce that, help calm that. So, you know, this, I'm sure you've heard this saying before. Is this a pill for every ill? Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I've had this with clients who, as you're talking about people on multiple medications and serious medications with serious side effects, yeah, where they do, they will come in and when they're spending maybe only 10 minutes or so with a psychiatrist or a prescriber, that's not even enough time to even go over the negative side effects, let alone to get a meaningful assessment of how someone's doing. But I had someone just the other day who we sat down and he went, I'd really just like to know what of the symptoms I'm experiencing are actually from me versus coming from my medications. Because when you brought up somebody going, I have a new symptom, part of, I think, with me and empowering my clients is, of course, I sit back and I go, well, you deserve to talk to your provider about that. You deserve to sit down and ask them questions. If they're not volunteering the information to say, I want to know all of the side effects, what do I need to look out for? Not just hand me a pamphlet. I want to talk about these because when I have somebody who has some serious challenges, but then they're on four different medications and we can't differentiate what of their symptoms are really coming from physiological, interpersonal, lifestyle choices or medications. That's concerning to me because we could pathologize all day or try to talk through their issue. But if it's lifestyle related, but we're not talking about lifestyle choices, if it's relationship related, but we're not talking about it, if it's coming from a medication that they're taking, but they're not exploring that. We could talk about it all day. And then they're personalizing the experience of a symptom, sometimes thinking, well, you know, what's wrong with me? And it could be, this is a side effect. I had this with a clinician I received therapy from while I was in my master's program. He was wonderful. He was a psychologist, but he never talked to me about physiologically what was going on or if I was working with my doctor. I had an undiagnosed autoimmune disease at that point. So it was lovely what I did with him, the work I did, but I could have improved so much more and received other beneficial support if even he had helped me recognize are you talking with your doctor? Like there might be something going on. I had a thyroid issue, but we could talk all day. We were not going to solve the fact that there was some dysfunction, but then even there, right? With a medical doctor, you can treat that with a medication. There's lifestyle things that also help treat autoimmune issues, but you go to the doctor, they give you a pill. They're not saying, Hey, let's talk about the dietary things that might be triggering or making worse your autoimmune. Again, levels and levels of lack of informed consent. And the thing is, Sometimes we'll get attacked and, and they'll say things like, oh, well, oh, you're saying a bit of exercise and a bit of mindfulness will suddenly change my life. And we're not saying that, but I, like you were talking, Alice, it sounds like you kind of say more holistic care would, would be more effective because I always say to people, okay, psychotherapy is one element of what you have in your life at the, at the moment. Now, there are other factors. And I'm not suddenly saying if you change... So, so we're talking diet, sleep, exercise, relationships, whether they have quiet time, spaces for themselves, rest, are they engaging in things that they enjoy? I'm not suddenly saying, okay, you change all of those factors and you suddenly go, oh, I feel wonderful. But it might be that maybe if you change one of the factors, it helps 5%, right? And that's something, right? It might be if you change another factor, that might help 
that's part of that informed consent is also making sure we're not treating therapy, as you're saying, as the end all be all. And yes. more to shift that on to take a med and that's the end all be all or do self-care better or get more sleep and that's the end all. I think part of the informed consent process is understanding the potential value, the potential risks and the limitation and helping people. I feel like empowering people to be empowered in those other areas of their life. And then advocating as well for with other professionals they might work with in other areas of their life and requiring appropriate informed consent as well, which can be difficult. Yeah. Oh, I know that this is a conversation that the three of us could just have all day long. <laughs> <laughs> all day, yeah. all, all night. day, all <laughs> night. We could yeah. we could get together and have a week long just conversation about we'll, all of we'll, this. We'll, we'll come up with a course for, for people. In yeah. England and in America. You should. I'll, I'll, great. I'll, 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 I'll jet over. It gives me a chance to come back to America. Perfect. <laughs> yes. Next time you're in Utah. <laughs> we have so appreciated having you on our show and having this conversation. And I hope that those who listen feel, hopefully, it, may, it would make sense to feel some frustration or some disappointment. I know for me, in my own journey of figuring out what is beyond diagnoses, there was some anger about, well, why did nobody tell me this before? Why did nobody tell me that there could be something deeper, right? Yeah. I hope in all of those emotions that there is also some feeling of empowerment and of hope that there are plenty of professionals out there looking at how can we provide something that is beyond this box. And for those in your area, in the Liverpool area, Dr. Damien, how can they get a hold of you if they want to seek services from you or training or supervision? So like I was saying at the beginning, I've just recently set on my own private practice, which is called Wild Psychology. So Wild within a W-I-L-D-A. I have a website which uh, somebody else created for me because that is not my forte. So the website address is www.wildpsychology.co.uk. So the website, it doesn't just list services I provide. It also has some free resources on there. So if people want to drop by the website and they're not actually necessarily interested in contact to me about services that I provide is that there are articles on there that people can read. There's other podcasts that I've done. There are links to good booklets for people who've experienced trauma and other kind of psychological health problems. So I think ethically it's important for me that I put those kind of resources on there, which people can tap into if they think, well, I don't want to access any particular service you know, Damien offers, but I'll browse the website, do a bit of reading, maybe download some of the booklets, things like that. So that is my website and people can feel free to browse. In terms of psychotherapy, as well as seeing people face to face, I do offer psychotherapy via Zoom. So I do sometimes see people from uh, different areas in England and even different countries. We will definitely have to stay in touch, maybe have you back again to even expand on some of the things we've started to talk about today. I'd just like to thank both of you, you two, Andrew and Elizabeth. And uh, it's kind of heartwarming to see over there in America, there are people like you that are not only kind of speaking up about some of the important issues and raising awareness, but you're also on the ground providing sort of good quality ethical care so that's kind of heartwarming to say I think the podcast is one really good way of kind of getting voices out there 
and letting people think and be curious and to ask questions and I think that's really good. I also in terms of debate as well sometimes I'll have debate on the social media platform Twitter so I'm on there as at Dr DJ Wild. I'm not a music DJ it's just my, my middle <laughs> name my, my middle name is Joseph. <laughs> so, that's perfect yeah and i look forward to continuing to see your posts on twitter and linkedin and i really hope also for any clinicians listening to you know really consider expanding that informed consent as kind of our main topic today that is our ethical duty i strongly believe that it is our ethical duty i've had other clinicians question me and say well if we tell everybody everything then they might choose to not get services Yes, that is the definition of consent, telling everybody everything, and then they get to say yes or no. If we are deciding for them that they are incapable or incompetent or too mentally ill in some way to be able to exercise their free will to to consent to things, then that is a slippery slope. So for clinicians out there who are listening, I would love to hear your thoughts on informed consent or what this looks like in your process and strongly encourage you to really look at the informed consent process and see how you can improve it. Yeah, I'd I'd sort of concur with all of that. I mean, you know, if you look at sort of medical health care, if you were going for an operation, you would be very clearly told, look, these are possible benefits if you have in this operation. These are the possible side effects, right? And it would be clearly communicated in maybe written form verbally. And so people can sometimes think, well, psychological health, is it a bit more ambiguous? Is it is it less clear cut than, say, talking about an operation? Maybe it is a little more difficult to outline some of that, but it is absolutely essential because when people come to see us they are trusting us with part of their lives you know their feelings which they might have kept hidden for a number of years so this is really serious and important work so we have to be open and honest and remember that informed consent is the cornerstone of ethical healthcare. Thank you so much, Dr. Damien. Definitely, everyone, look him up if you can, if you're interested to learn more. Thank you for everyone who has been listening online. If you have questions for Dr. Damien, definitely feel free to send those to us. We can send them on to him or reach out to him directly. And if there's any topics you would like us to explore further from what we talked about today or from past podcasts, let us know and we can make sure we touch on those. Keep an ear out and an eye out for our upcoming podcast where we might explore some of these topics and more. But everybody take care of yourselves. And Dr. Damien, you take care of yourself as well. See you later. You have a great afternoon. Ciao.